Psalm 14 says, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. Atheism is foolish, meaning it is inherently, philosophically indefensible. Atheism is inherently intellectually dishonest. And one of the ways that you can see this, it's very easy, is to recognize that atheists assume absolute moral standards. They use absolute moral standards, but they cannot, they do not provide any foundation for the standards that they assume and use. In fact, the atheist borrows the Christian theistic worldview in order to try and refute it. The fool, the atheist, says in his heart there is no God. Thanks for joining us today on Sinners and Saints. In an age of moral bankruptcy, political sleaze, theological confusion, and aimless religion in a mindless church, we're addressing the need for a Bible-based, intellectually rigorous, 21st century Christian faith. This is Sinners and Saints. Theology with an edge. Yes, this is Sinners and Saints. Welcome. Adam Kalustian here from Ontario United Reformed Church, Ontario, California, with my co-host Moses Jambazian of Pasadena URC in Pasadena, California, and, of course, John Sotel, the pastor of All Saints Reformed Church in Diamond Bar, California. We are thrilled that you have tuned into the podcast today as we continue on our series reviewing, analyzing, critiquing Richard Dawkins' bestseller, The God Delusion, and the atheism that it so well represents. And we're launching it today into our first direct attack or critique of the book. Of course, we've hinted at it in the couple of shows prior, but we want you to be very clear about where we're going today. We're going to show you that Richard Dawkins refutes himself. He assumes absolute standards of morality. He admits even that he cannot give any objective, adequate philosophical defense or basis for using them, and yet he just passes over that problem like there's you know, nothing wrong with what he's doing. You're only as strong as your weakest link, right? And uh, the, the giant, massive 5,000-pound elephant in the room is, is the chapter he's dealing with right now. I mean, there's some, you can read this book and you can almost stand in awe of his ability to give articulate explanations of how things came to be. But then you, it, it comes down, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is one of the most difficult points of the atheistic argument. How in the world can you come up with a set of universally binding uh, morals and account for them in any kind of a meaningful way? And you've got to give the guy credit, first of all. He takes it on. He does a terrible job at it and exposes his Achilles heel right away. He has absolutely no explanation for this. And it's interesting how he begins the chapter. He begins by saying, it would seem at first glance that natural selection really doesn't give any kind of a valid explanation for goodness, virtues, and morality. So he he concedes at the outset and then bungles his way through 20 pages of trying to figure out how to fool you okay thinking he's got some good explanation right let me read the quote on the face of it the darwinian idea that evolution is driven by natural selection seems ill-suited to explain such goodness as we possess or our feelings of morality decency empathy and pity now what john is saying is that he goes on in this chapter it's chapter six on morality to offer up four reasons why individuals are moral to each other but before we go into that i want you to understand 
even he admits by the end of the chapter that these four foundations of why morality is evident in the human race are merely descriptive, okay? They don't provide us an absolute standard by which to say to somebody else, this is wrong or this is right. It will become evident that he has no answer to that argument uh, a little bit later in the chapter, but you know it's probably worth talking about the reasons why he thinks we're moral in the first place. And he gets very dodgy, but it's kind of fun going through this chapter because if you were uh, a little kid, I wonder if you ever did this. You took a uh, a spyglass out and you stuck it in the sun, and sometimes for science class they'd have you put a leaf underneath it or something, and it would burn a hole in the leaf, or you do with a bug or something. That's the same thing that's going on here in this chapter. Here you finally get a chance to have a little boost up your self esteem a little bit because you know he has to answer this question in order to give his case validity, and he has there's no explanatory power in the options that he gives. So this is a great opportunity for you to sort of buck up your self confidence a little bit and realize that though he may hurl a thousand insults and come up with some good criticisms at points of Christianity, I mean, at least uh, Christianity gone awry, here is where the argument is going to be made against Christianity or it's going to fall. And clearly it falls because as Pastor Adam in a moment is going to go through the explanations he gives for how it could be that there are enduring, uh, binding moral absolutes, the case falls through the cracks. Okay, so let's dive into this here. I, I think it's interesting to think about the title of his chapter, The Roots of Morality, Why Are We Good? I mean, one of the things that that exposes is that he is not really ready to deal with our fundamental critique of his view of morality. He spends a lot of the chapter talking about, from a Darwinian evolutionary perspective, how we can account for the the reality that people are moral and that they have moral ideas. But really, that's not our fundamental critique of atheism, that there can be described why particular people act a certain way. We're going to ask a question later, which is, what is the foundation in a Darwinian evolutionary worldview? What is the objective standard by which you can call anything good or bad or whatever? But he spends most of his chapter just describing the roots of morality in his view. What's interesting and somewhat humorous about that, because I hadn't taken note of the title, uh, The Roots of Morality, Why We Are Good, it would have been a lot easier for him to argue his case if the title was uh, Why Are We Bad? Because if you're going to argue from a Darwinian perspective, that's the easiest thing to prove of all. Well, why are people so rotten and filthy? A good answer as a counter to original sin is because of the whole principle of natural selection. It breeds ruthlessness, violence, and selfishness. And even the title already betrays the problem, is that he's presuming that there is a category called good, and therefore we should explain why we are doing these things. He should have actually simply written, why do men act the way they do, instead of calling it good or bad, because as soon as you go into good and bad, you've already made a value judgment, which, from a Darwinian perspective, there is no category for this. People or creation or whatever it is out there just does what it does. And you're just simply trying to explain why it's doing it. But he's trying to say, no, there are things which we consider to be good and more positive attributes. And therefore, we should do them because they're beneficial. But he never really expounds it in a manner that is clear. But you know, in his defense, no atheist has ever succeeded. And they've been trying now for hundreds of years. In fact, going back to the pagan era of Rome, we have writings of people trying to refute Christianity and Christian morals, and they've never succeeded in presenting a counter system that was internally self-consistent, that upheld their philosophical foundations, and still provided for what we would call true goodness that people innately know 
exists, right? It's it's um, it's atheistic cowardice is what it is to admit that they don't have any foundation and to disregard all of morals and meaning because that's exactly what their worldview does. I mean, listen to this uh, quote in his book. It's a fellow atheist of his in response to the idea that some fellow scientists see no conflict between science and religion because they claim science is about how things work and religion is about what it's all for. This this atheist friend retorted, well, I don't think we're for anything. We're just products of evolution. And somebody could say, gee, your life must be pretty bleak if you don't think there's a purpose. But I'm anticipating having a good lunch. <laughs> right. You can see everybody laughing about that in the little atheistic circle. But you see, our point is the atheist will admit in his honest moments that they cannot be, according to their worldview, for or against anything. And yet, on the other hand, at many points, and every atheist lives their life this way, they will act as if there are absolute moral standards, and they will make sure, and you see Dawkins in his book doing this, to call people to account for what they view to be violations of that, whether it be dishonesty or meanness or murder or anything else. Well, in his case, he's basically calling on everyone who has any sort of a theistic concept to repudiate it for the good of the race. He's saying there is a better course for the human race to take, and that is the repudiation of an existential God, of a, of a one who exists and transcends time and space, and therefore who is able to be the lawgiver. He says we will be better off without this. But he, I don't believe that his argument or anybody else's really supports this thesis, Well, but even, it will be better. But even if it does, on what our point is, on what ground does Dawkins call anything better or worse? That's the point. That's exactly, it's completely yeah. arbitrary. He talks a lot about things that would be better or worse. I like it this way. I don't like it that way. On what basis? The atheistic worldview cannot account for anything being better or worse except it merely being a convention or an evolutionary, evolutionary development of the person who's making that argument. Yeah, see, this is just exactly Exactly, and Moses and both you guys are putting your finger on the on the pulse of the problem here, is because he has no reason to choose one act being better over another. Why should somebody, uh, you know, for instance, a, a guy in a military context throwing his body on a grenade to save his buddies? Why should that be deemed better than uh, genocidal uh, ethnic cleansing in Iraq or Serbia or wherever else? There are two things that lead to death. Yet one is noble; everybody recognizes that, and one is evil and sinister and destructive. But we understand why one is good and one is bad based upon our worldview. But he doesn't explain that. He just assumes that there is moral goodness to uh, a buddy throwing uh, his body over a grenade to save people in his, in his squad. Now listen, when you argue this with atheists, the first thing they're going to say is, well, wait a minute. No, you can't say that. We believe the same thing you do. We're moral people. We believe that a guy throwing himself on the grenade is good too. And our answer is, we're not saying that you don't believe that. We're saying that your worldview does not, cannot give an account for that position that you hold so dear. Your worldview is philosophically indefensible. It is a massive hole which atheists have never been able to refute. We'd actually say it's even worse than that, that you're actually being very hypocritical. You are stealing our worldview. You are taking our values, and then you are saying that, no, these are just naturally present and obvious to all. And we're saying, no, it is actually a system of absolutes that you are saying, and you are putting categories, and you are saying certain actions fit in one of these two categories of good or bad. And that's not available in your system. So you need to develop something that has no categories of good and evil. It requires an incredibly sophisticated explanatory mechanism to 
come to a point where absolutely everybody, millions upon millions upon millions upon even billions of people would look at the same action and come to the same conclusion. I'll give you an example. This is uh, Frame gives an example of how we can perceive that there is some truth. There is there is obvious truth to the fact that moral values exist. He says any two witnesses could watch uh, a violent crime occur. Say a thug comes down the street, uh, a granny's walking along with a purse in her arm, and the thug comes along and knocks her over the head, steals her purse, and runs away. Well, everybody understands that there is an action there that wasn't advantageous uh, to one of the parties. But the fact is, behind the action, there is a moral evil, which is not visible. You can't taste, touch, sense, or feel it. But everybody viewing that would accept that there was something sinful, something morally repulsive and wrong about uh, a thug coming along, beating an old grandmother over the head, and stealing her purse full of credit cards. Now, what explanatory mechanism can you possibly come up with that's sophisticated enough to account for any two people you randomly choose anywhere looking at that and saying, yeah, that, that's wrong. There's something deeply immoral with that. He cannot come up with a mechanism that explains that moral outrage. In terms of actually, in terms of uh, Darwinian evolution, I would say that that should actually be viewed as a good thing because the old woman has already gone past able to generate offspring, and therefore she has no need for these things. She's actually consuming resources without providing a benefit for the continuation of the species. This young man who is more virile has taken economic opportunity to advance his descendants and his line. Therefore, his actions actually should be lauded, and it's good, and her resisting it is what's evil. Right, or at least it could be seen as neutral. But, I mean, Dawkins does try and give an account for the morality, the general morality that everybody possesses in the world. I mean, it'd be interesting to think about that for a minute. He says that uh, morality itself is a byproduct of four rules of thumb that were developed in our species at an earlier village living point. So, for example, one of the uh, reasons, he says it's genetic kinship that causes us to act moral to each other. So I will take care of those people that are similar to me, that are like me in my genetic pool, so that that pool will replicate. It has greater chance to survive. But the only way that has any kind of explanatory power is if that were generally true. And it it still wouldn't give it a lot of explanatory power, but, but just think about it. The the pages of history are scattered with all kinds of examples of family strife, family division, where dysfunctionality, where siblings kill each other, maim each other, steal from each other, steal from their parents, dishonor their family. I mean, it just isn't true. If you just look at it from a, uh, from an evidentiary perspective, it's just not true that people treat each other that way. Also, if you observe the animal kingdom, you have species that have survived and dominated, and yet they actually will kill the offsprings of their competitors. So when a new lion comes into an area and finds a female, he will kill all her cubs so that there will be no cubs from another male. And cats do this too. I mean, They've observed it in farms and things like that, which makes no sense. And yet cats and lions thrive. Lions are even considered king of the jungle. Well, this would be completely counterintuitive to his argument. Same thing that uh, from farm experience. I kind of grew up on a little, little small farm uh, in, in Hickville, USA. And when our when our sows were farrowing and having uh, little piglets, we would have to immediately snatch the pigs out of 
the, the litter out from the mother because she'd, she'd squash them. She, uh, very often, they're very hostile towards their young. They'll bite them, devour them, squash them, smother them. So you have to take them out. There's all kinds of examples from nature that show that this explanation just doesn't have any power or force to it. Okay. But to, to, to make a universally binding moral principle. Right, that's that right. Way. Because, look, I mean, I, I'm certain that Dawkins is going to interpret the various examples that you gave. He's going to talk about how they serve a, a broader gene pool or they serve the, those particular instances of violence against those in your own gene pool are a misfiring of the other competing principles for the preservation of a of a specific gene pool. The point is what John said at the end. None of this description, okay, of supposedly the reasons why we have a universal moral conscience answered the fundamental question that we have been asking atheists for hundreds of years, and none of them can give a good answer for the fundamental critique of atheism, which is you as an atheist, if you, you can describe the existence of morality for all of the through all the mechanisms that you want, it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, none of it provides an objective foundation for anyone to say that anything is absolutely good or absolutely bad, and yet at the same time, you as an atheist, without that foundation, act and argue and live as if there are absolute standards of good and evil. Nobody can get around it. Nobody can get around it. Think of all of the, if, you read, if you've read this book, think of all of the whining and the complaining about various things that Dawkins has done. And in fact, in the first couple of shows that we joined hands with him about things that he was upset about, things that he said are wrong. On what basis does an atheist have to say that anything is wrong? If, if all of our mores and morals are merely products of, of developments and however he would want to explain that along the evolutionary history, that doesn't account for what's good and what's evil. That just is describing it, and that won't answer the question for us. Yeah, the best it could do is account for uh, principles or morals that hold true for communities. For instance, he's in an academic community, so there are going to be certain standards uh, maybe that are required for decorum behavior, scientific analysis, research, uh, whatever, categorizing data. It's only going to work for these small, factionalized, regionalized, local entities. They just cannot possibly offer universal explanations for uh, the perception of what's morally uh, good and virtuous and honorable uh, across the globe. What I find fascinating is that Dawkins, in the chapter, The Roots of Morality, Why Are We Good?, when he finally comes to the end of the chapter, he does raise this question. And I want to read this quote, it's a little bit extended, because it's amazing to me. He says, a religious thinker could offer this genuine uh, moral critique. Here's the quote. If you don't believe in God, you don't believe there are any absolute standards of morality. And that's what we're saying today on the show, right? With the best will in the world, you may intend to be a good person, but how do you decide what is good and what is bad? So you see, he's putting his finger on the critique, right? And what is the answer that he gives? Well, first he says, well, even if it were true that we need God to be moral, it would, of course, not make God's existence more likely, merely more desirable. Many people cannot tell the difference, but that is not the issue here. And then he goes on to talk about some philosophers, notably uh, Kant, have tried to derive absolute morals from non-religious sources, although, of course, he shows and critiques Kant's own view in the course of his book. And basically, the chapter ends. <laughs> and what's amazing is he puts his 
his finger on the question that the religious apologist, the theist, will raise against atheism, and he has no answer for it. I find that fascinating. And, of course, he whines at the end. He says, well, the preferred source of absolute morality is usually a holy book of some kind, interpreted as having an authority far beyond its history's capacity to justify. Indeed, adherents of scriptural authority show distressingly little curiosity about the normally highly dubious historical origins of their holy books. So he says, look, I mean... Yeah, aside from maybe patriotism, religion is really the place you're going to look for absolute moral standards. And the problem with those religions is their holy books that supposedly give this standard don't meet the muster of historical criticism, don't meet the muster of their self-contradiction, which we'll address in further shows. But I want you to see here, he has no answer to the critique. He also sounds like a child, the way he ends this, it, it strikes me so much of how kids treat each other. I don't I, have an argument, but you yeah, don't have an argument neither, either. Neither, neither. Yeah, it's like I bring my football down to the local uh, park and all of us are playing, and then I don't like the fact that I got pushed over, tagged wrong, somebody intercepted my pass, so I pick up my football and I run home. Hey, that's exactly what he's doing. Say, oh, you don't have an argument, I don't have one, so it's all even. Well, no, that's not exactly true. We do have an argument that's coherent, philosophically sound, and he doesn't have one. And he knows it, so then he just pretends like we are on equal footing. Well, I don't like yours. Right. That's basically what it boils down. I don't like your explanation. I haven't proved it invalid or wrong. I just don't like it. Now, read between the lines. So he's saying that uh, some, the basically the way you get to an absolute moral standard is through religion or patriotism. We would dismiss patriotism as an absolute standard along with him. But – Think about that. So his critique of religion is that the holy books that are the standard supposedly have great historical inaccuracies and supposedly are self-contradictory in morals. Now, does that mean, Dr. Dawkins, that if the holy book, a holy book, and holy book, is shown to be historically accurate and and holy book is shown to be self-consistent morally, that you will then accept it as the foundation for morality? Well, I don't know, but we are going to demonstrate that as it has been demonstrated over thousands of years in the defense of the Christian faith. And we expect that then you're going to face the facts, not just your own opinions and your likes and dislikes and your discomfort with the Christian God, but that you're going to repent and believe on him and agree with the revelation that he has given. He is, after all, the standard of morality because what is good and what is bad is a reflection of his righteous good character which he has also uh, revealed in his holy laws. So, uh, coming back to how he accounts for the process of where morality and virtue and so forth come from, because he doesn't have his own uh, source of written revelation, he makes up his own and has a number of descriptive theories for it. We talked about the first one, genetic kinship being a, a possible route to morality where you have a strong urge and desire to uh, do things that are beneficial uh, for your own family and so forth. Uh, the next one that he offers here is reciprocation. I'm just going to take the, the following three that he gives as a unit because they all uh, are tied together by the common thread of selfishness. So the first uh, reason that may account for uh, universal morals is reciprocation. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Another one is it's advantageous to acquire the reputation for generosity and kindness. And then the the other one is conspicuous assertive generosity earns success or projects power. Like I said, all three of them hold together around the concept of selfishness. Now, that is something that he already concedes is a problem 
for him in trying to demonstrate foundations for morality because he says natural selection itself is inherently a selfish concept or idea. The thing that passes through the hierarchy of natural selection tends to finally make it through the whole process because it is selfish, ruthlessly selfish. And it's interesting now that when he goes to give an account for uh, where we get morality from, all of it is selfishness. How could it be a universally valid binding foundation for absolute moral principles to say that morality is grounded in reciprocation. You scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. There's too many examples where show that that's not advantageous, first of all. Think of, think of bullying, for instance. They're not interested in scratching your back and they're not interested in you scratching their back. They're very fine to be self-sufficient, stronger than you, and beat you up and steal your lunch money. There's nothing in it that produces virtue or goodness. There's also another weakness to this, is that he's basically looking at the Christian worldview of goodness and evil, and he is saying that, okay, I, I adhere to or I recognize the categories. I just don't believe that they have come from a transcendent God, but they actually developed. And so now he's going back and postulating what were possible precursors to the current moral standards that we have. And so he posits these four, but they're basically complete guesswork. They're not proven historically, which is, I would imagine, the standard that he wishes to use. There's no biological imperative for any of them, which as a Darwinian evolutionist, he has to have a biological imperative for the explanation. And none of these would be adequate. Well, right. He said, well, hold on. But he yeah. says, you know, well, what else, Moses, could account for the universal morals that we all share? But see, the point is we have an answer to that, too. I mean, he talks about these somewhat complex moral situations or dilemmas that uh, people have uh, moral philosophers have given surveys to people that live in all different parts of the world and how amazingly many people the vast majority of humans come down very much on the same side of of evaluating these events and how that just shows that that's the process of evolutionary conditioning that that we have inherited from evolutionary history and its processes but i mean we have an answer for that, too. The explanation is that man was created in the image of God, and even though he has fallen into sin, by common grace, he, because God is upholding this evil world while he is saving his people until the end of history, uh, mankind is able to treat each other with a, a certain measure of respect and decency. Now, Dawkins will say, well, we haven't proven that either. Our point is, line up one philosophical worldview, his, and one philosophical worldview, ours, that they are competing, and one of them has reason, philosophically, has a grounds, has an objective standard in which to say something is good and bad, and his other one doesn't. I mean, even if you want to grant that all of his arguments are self-consistent, which, as we're saying, they're not, not, it doesn't matter because it doesn't offer any objective standard, which he will continually press in his arguments against theism. But also, his own explanations give rise to questions which he himself cannot answer. You know, he, he's giving us selfish reasons for why morality developed. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Well, let's take it back to the example that we used a little bit earlier of the crime scene where the thug comes along and uh, knocks the old lady over the head with a club and steals her purse. Now, tell me, how does his explanation for how morals come to pass fit that situation? I mean, you could say, well, on one hand... 
well, it fits I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine theory of the development of morality by saying, well, I just wouldn't want that to happen to me or to my mother, so we're all going to agree that it's good for us not to do that kind of stuff. Say, okay, well, that may have some explanation, but what if I don't have a mom? What if I don't care about my mom? There's a whole number of problems that are associated with that that it doesn't answer. But let me ask you one more, plugging it back into this scenario here. How does this theory of morality account for moral outrage? You know, I may not like it because it causes there to be a breakdown in civil discourse and behavior. But that doesn't still account for how I could be morally outraged, even if I'm not related to that old grandmother got her purse stolen, I would still be ticked. And it doesn't explain that. No, and also doesn't do any good to say that there should be good behavior or that evil behavior or bad behavior should be condemned because ultimately he's basically just saying it's like this is for the good of our species. But who says that our species is good or that it needs to exist? I mean, we've got so many species that have already become extinct. And if humanity becomes extinct, how does that negatively affect the Earth experiment or the universe? There's no reason for, uh, if all humans killed each other, he can't say that that's a bad thing to occur. Well, right. And, but, and, and I think you'll see this as you read him. And as I, he quoted his friend, the atheist, we're not for anything. And he seems to affirm that and kind of laugh with that. Look, I mean, at some points in his book, he is consistent and just says, yeah, you know what? That may happen. And you know what? Greater, more complex, more intelligent forms of life may develop. They may not. They may swallow us up. They may not. But you know what? At the end of the day, in an atheistic worldview, it doesn't really matter. And on the other hand, he wants to whine and complain about various things throughout the book. And he has – see, the atheist doesn't have a foundation for morality, for meaning. All it is is a world full of – a universe full or universes, if he wants to postulate that, full of bags of stuff that are – existing in relative degrees of complexity and have relative relative degrees of consciousness. But, of course, he's not arguing and not acting that way. You know, here, as we, we wind down this discussion on his views of uh, the foundations and origins of morality, I, I, I just have a question I was going to throw. I've been thinking about it as we've been talking through this. And um, I wonder why it is that and, – and this is not to say that we're going to discover Dawkins' own motives. I don't think he fully discloses those. But why is it that people like Dawkins, these atheists – who have a perfectly valid alternative to finding uh, the foundations of morality in divine revelation or in theism in general, even if you rejected certain portions of Christianity, why would they set those aside and do everything they can to to eradicate that and to stamp it out as a, as a viable alternative? It sounds to me like they're hiding from something. And if they are, what are they hiding from? What is it that they don't like about this... Uh, theistic system of morality that they want to they want to run some, run from so badly. Yeah, like Dawkins, you know, what is your problem with Christian theism? Like, or what is your problem with theism? Why? I mean, of all the things that you've chosen to be morally outraged about, you know, to quote the uh, the car parts buyer in Tommy Boy speaking to David Spade's character, you know, you're a smug unhappy little man and you treat people like they were idiots i mean why are you so upset about things according to your worldview if everything is just bags of chemicals and existing in various degrees of consciousness why have you as this little bag of stuff decided to 
fix your critique on theism? Well, Scripture says that because the unbelieving world always suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. What can be known about God is known to them, but they don't like to hear it. And so it's this fight, this ongoing battle that's been taking place since the garden where man has set himself up as God. I mean, the original temptation was we shall be like God, but the reality is we want to be God and we want God to basically become our servant. And so basically all you see being manifested in Dawkins' books and just general atheism, unbelief, and even hypocrite Christians is this idea that we are not pleased with the created order. We are not happy with the fact that there is a creator. We believe that we should be the guardians of ourselves, that we should be the master of our destiny, and the admission of a transcendent creator of the heavenly God is anathema to us. It's in competition to that. And so we suppress it in any way we can, even when we go into flights of irrationality where we acknowledge that there's this central question we cannot answer, such as what is goodness and why do we seek to be good? We would rather throw everything out rather than actually admit the possibility that God exists. He created us in his image and therefore righteousness, morality, conscience comes from him. And the appeal of autonomy seems to me to be that we have, whether, I'm not impugning, imputing this to Dawkins, but to or people— Or specific in, motives to yeah, Dawkins. specific motives. But, but the beauty of autonomy is that it, it helps us legitimize uh, or sanction some cherished activity that we would like to indulge in, whether that's sex— or robbery, or murder, or covetousness, or whatever, autonomy gives me the out. There's no morality anyway, or at least I have my own, what works for me. And so who are you to tell me that I can't indulge in this self-serving activity? I like it, and I want to do it. That's right. And if God's in the way, I can't, because then I'm going to have a guilty conscience. That's right. You quoted it, Moses, suppressing the truth from Romans 1, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. So you suppress, for example, the truth of the existence of the Christian God for moral reasons. I mean, you have a darkened mind because you were not satisfied with the commandments that God has given. I, I you know, we talked about this before the show, but the new Ten Commandments that are proposed among by different atheists from time to time and do not do to others what you would not do what I don't want them to do to you in all things, strive to cause no harm. Treat your fellow human beings, your fellow living things in the world in general with love, honesty, faithfulness, and respect. And, you know, again, we can't just, we can't help but ask, on what basis do you define objectively? Do you uphold objectively? Do you hold anybody to following these commandments? The idea of a command to follow objectively, that has no weight in an atheist worldview. And then, of course, Dawkins, I thought this was funny, adds his own a uh, few lines here. Enjoy your own sex life. This is a new commandment. So long as it damages nobody else and leave others to enjoy theirs in private, whatever their inclinations, which are none of your business. I, I think this is hilarious because uh, it is so incredibly oversimplistic. I mean, part of the reason why he puts these commandments forward is because he thinks that, you know, historical models are simplistic or self-contradictory. What about this one? Sexuality, enjoy enjoy your own sex life so long as it damages nobody else. As if, like, the, the one of the, the greatest struggles of humanity is people try to enjoy their sexuality without damaging somebody <laughs> else's. just won't leave me alone. Right, either of their opinion of them or the consequences <laughs> of their adultery or fornication or whatever it might be. It's just amazing. But in any case, uh, look, aside from all of our critiques of the descriptive 
attempt he makes, the roots of why we are good, even if we affirmed everything he said about that, the fundamental critique of his worldview still stands, that he cannot, even if all of that is true, give an account for the reason why something may be called good. He cannot give an account for why something may be called bad. And yet all throughout the book, he is morally outraged at various different things and critiquing them. He has no account of them in his worldview. Atheism cannot account for absolute standards of morality and goodness, and yet every atheist lives with those categories very passionately and argues against things that they don't accept. It's a bankrupt worldview. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Thanks for tuning in to Sinners and Saints. Join us next week as we tackle more topics with the truth of God's Word on Sinners and Saints. Theology with an edge.